All right, we're in uh, Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38, right on the heels of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I will confess that this is a difficult text in a number of different ways, especially if your default is to try and put the gospel in something. There is nothing to be found here that is good. Um, Let's hear the word of God. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant with their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, meaning um, son of my people. He is the father of the Ammonites today. Let's pray. Father, sometimes your word is uh, very honest, very ugly, and devoid of hope. And uh, this short passage is one of those places that uh, seen only in itself uh, is that way. It shows us more of what life is like apart from you uh, than life is with you. And so we ask that you would instruct us, that you would warn us, that you would stir us up to better things this morning. Uh, For the sake of your Son, the fount of every blessing. Amen. I'm sure every... Town has their people. Okay, I did not know of my town's people, so to speak, until I went to middle school. And it was when I was in middle school that I learned about the Emmons. And the Emmons were sort of the family that no one wanted anything to do with. If, if there was one of the Emmons children in your class, then you didn't want to really communicate with them because the rumor was that the Emmons were inbred. Not sure how, how far this went or anything like that, but you sort of got the idea that they had like three-headed dogs and they were just kind of the, the freaky family in the neighborhood that no one wanted anything to do with. And it really wasn't until I had my car and I was able to drive and I came across the Emmons house. And it looked pretty normal to me. Nothing strange, unusual uh, that you would, you would recognize there, but they had this reputation in town, at least among the students in school, of being a freaky family that you wanted to avoid. But what happens when the freaky family is your relatives? That sort of brings in a whole different dimension to things, doesn't it? Well, this morning we're introduced to sort of the freaky family, but they're the relatives of the Israelites. They're the relatives of Abraham, and after him Isaac, and Jacob, 
and beyond. And so this is a very, this is not just an interesting, strange, odd tidbit, but we'll see that this actually is a relationship that is twisted all the way through the Old Testament. So this is not just a, that's an odd little thing to find in the Bible, but actually is very significant. The big idea this morning is that when fear captures the heart, we spiral down into greater and greater sin. So this is not just about them people over there. This is really also about us people here. Fear. This is why it's about us too. Fear opens doors to great temptation. Fear is one of the things that really permeates this passage. It starts off with Lot's fear. Now, it's kind of interesting that he has this fear because he has just experienced the amazing deliverance of God. His family is the only family that made it out of Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plain. It is by his sheer presence in the town of Zoar that Zoar was not flattened like a pancake. Now, we don't know exactly what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. It could have been a volcano. And while we were on vacation, we got to go to the, the sunset crater and look at the lava flow and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was interesting to me to kind of think of Sodom and Gomorrah within that context of, of how uh, that area was just wiped out. It completely changed. And, and it's amazing that there is actually some life a thousand years later that is growing in the midst of the lava flow. But this is right after it. This is right after this disaster has been unleashed, and he is still afraid. He is afraid to remain in Zoar, and so he flees into a cave, and yet the scripture is unclear as to what he's afraid of. Is he afraid that Zoar will be destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah? Is he afraid that perhaps the people of Zoar will find out he came from Sodom and Gomorrah and begin to sort of ostracize him? We're not really sure what exactly the fear is that he has, and yet this fear shapes his decision to flee this town of Zoar and to go into the mountains and into a cave. Think of that for a moment. Wealthy, important lot has been reduced to a guy and his two daughters living in a cave. Kind of frightening how that can happen. He's sort of like the single parent gone bad, you know, living in a car. In fact, uh, you know, when I worked at the Orlando Union Rescue Mission, I would talk to some of the guys and say, oh, how did you get here? What sort of happened? And one of the stories that I heard quite a bit was the loss of a loved one that, was, that this person was unable to kind of deal with. And sometimes it was their spouse, and the guy just couldn't keep it together and ended up homeless and traveling the country. Sometimes it was the loss of a child. And to hear the, the pain of a man who knows he's left his wife behind because he can't deal with what had just happened. That's sort of the situation here uh, for Lot. He's lost his wife. He's lost his job. He's lost his home. He's lost everything but his two daughters. And here he is in a cave filled with fear. What's interesting to me, and as other people like Ian Duguid have noticed, that he did not seek out Abraham. Wouldn't you think that would be one of the things that kind of first came to his mind, is, I need to find my uncle. He is the one God has made this incredible promise to. He's the one that God is blessing. I should go seek him out and... and 
and be with him. He can help me put my life back together again. And yet he doesn't do this. And, and part of me is sympathetic to him because, after all, he just lost everything. He's not in his right mind. And yet he neglects Abraham. He neglects God's means of grace because at that point, really, the blessing that was going to come to the nations is really found centralized in this guy, Abraham. And all those, again, who bless Abraham are blessed by God and all who think lightly of Abraham are cursed by God. And so he functions throughout this whole section of Scripture as sort of this pointing us to Christ in whom all the nations shall be blessed. And so... It's important for it would be important for him to go back to Abraham. And he doesn't do this, and so he neglects God's means of grace. But what happens is that his fear begins to open the door to his own daughter's temptation. We see this a lot. I mean, this is really an application. Guys, your fear, when you give in to your fears, you will place your wife and your children into places of temptation. It will happen constantly. When, when you are living in self-pity, you put your wife in a position where she is tempted to start to nag you, to complain against you, to disrespect you. You're putting your children in a position where they can do sort of the same things. We don't, our sin is not isolated and sort of, you know, just, it only sticks to me. <laughs> it's like a tar baby. It just sucks everything in, you know, like a black hole, just sucking everything else in. And so when we give in to our own fears, what ends up happening is that those around us begin to be placed into a position in which they experience temptation as well. It doesn't just end with you. Okay? So that's just not for guys, but I'm picking on the guys. We're tough, we can take it, right? Okay? Their fear now emerges. Okay, his daughters now begin to experience fear. They are afraid that Lot's line is going to die with them. It's sort of interesting because they they throw out this phrase of, there is no man around here. No man in in the world or the land. Kind of like, wait a minute, weren't you just in Zoar? (laughs) Aren't there guys there? Aren't there guys elsewhere? But they're, 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 because of their fear, they, they've really kind of, they're now experiencing tunnel vision. This is what part of what fear does to us, is it creates sort of a tunnel vision. They're afraid they will not find a man, which is sort of reasonable because now there's no reason for them, for a man to want to be part of their family. All of Lot's position and standing have been eliminated. He's no longer someone that's, that a guy would say, Hmm, I could marry well and marry into that family. Now it's all they're going to get is the poor and the bedraggled. Okay? And besides, we're living in a cave. Okay? Who's going to marry people living in a cave? And so they have some, some legitimate concerns that are operating here. Uh, but yet, fear is blinding them to grace because they too refuse to go and find Abraham. They refuse, more importantly, to trust God. All of this is driven by fear. Of course, I, my mind keeps going to Star Wars, you know. 
Fear leads to the dark side, you know, um, what Yoda would tell uh, Luke Skywalker. But, but fear really does open up a, a, a foothold for the enemy to get into our hearts and to lead us into great temptation, the real dark side. Okay? What scares you? What are the fears that currently exist within your own heart? Because it's not just about them. This also says a lot about us. That our fears reveal, reveal what our idols are. The things that we're afraid of losing or the things that we're afraid will happen to us. And that reveals what really ultimately controls us. And so that question really becomes not just what scares me, but what does that do? How do my fears move me away from Christ just as their, fo- their fears have removed them farther away from Abraham. They're in a cave. And it points to the reality of the, the, the functional Savior versus the real Savior. And their functional Savior, at this point, we're going to see is themselves. Their own wisdom, their own devices, their own plans, they're going to use to try to save them from the mess that they're in. They're not looking to the real Savior, God himself, to deliver them from the mess that they are in. And so while Lot is declared to be righteous in that God was his Savior, still, functionally at this moment, he's not looking to God to save him. He's depending upon himself and his own wisdom. And he brings to himself and to his family a bitter pill. And so fear is often used by the enemy to gain this foothold into our hearts. And so the second part of this is that we see that gospel rejection ends up leading to greater immorality. Remember this. Peter calls him righteous lot. He isn't drawing near to Abraham who is the source of blessing as I mentioned. And so we see from that that lot is incredibly passive in this. Lot is neglecting the grace that is available to him at this point in time. He is not speaking the truth to his daughters either. Someone understandable again, considering his circumstances, his whole world has just been destroyed, and yet they need truth from him and he gives them nothing. He's probably sitting in the corner of the cave mumbling to himself, What's going to happen? What am I going to do? This is not good. It is easy for us to become passive and therefore to become neglectful. It is difficult for us to be disciplined. Uh, This week I was reading the letters of John Newton and he mentioned um, that he had just done the funeral for his friend William Cooper, who's some of who, whom's uh, hymns we sing. And so I was like, oh, I wanted to go back to the letters that he wrote to William Cooper, which were earlier in the book. And I found uh, this phrase in one of those letters that was near the end of that series. Um, it is proof of our depravity that good habits are much more easily lost than acquired. Whereas bad habits are acquired with ease, but laid aside with difficulty. What do you say? It's easier to lose a good habit than it is to get it. And it's easier to get a bad habit 
than it is to lose it. And that is the situation that Lot is in. He is neglectful. He has just accumulated the bad habit. It is easier to sleep in all the time, to learn how to sleep in as opposed to getting up early and get active. He's neglectful. He's, he's, entering in, he's becoming lazy in his spiritual life, in basically all of his life. He's becoming very passive. And so very bad, unexpected things happen to us when we are not watchful, when we are not diligent, which is precisely why uh, Paul, in a couple of places, tells us to be this diligence. Actually, one is Paul, Colossians chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Christ Jesus is revealed. Both Peter and Paul are advocating, in light of the grace of God, a diligence, an action orientation instead of a passivity. But Lot is trapped in this passivity at this point in time. And bad things happen. I keep talking too loud or something. I'm breathing too heavy. Sorry. Lot is just way too passive. He's allowing life to roll over him as opposed to responding to life with godly reaction. Okay? And so what happens is something that you'd see on the internet. There's a, so the people, from the people who brought you people of Walmart, I don't know if you've ever, ever seen that website. If, if, if you haven't, don't go. <laughs> it's just people of people at Walmart wearing embarrassing things is really what it is. And you, so you, it's sort of like the Emmons family, the freaky people all around the country at Walmart. That's all it is. There's pictures of that. But they also have a website that is similar, and it's, it's about people who are drunk. And you basically have three, car- uh, three categories of pictures of these people. One is the people who are sick. And then you have the people who are passed out, and horrible things have happened to them, like uh, you know, they've been cellophane and markers are written all over them, or you know, things like that. And then there's the people who haven't passed out yet, and yet they are doing things that they will see this picture and they'll go, oh my goodness, what did I, ju- what did I do? Stuff that's beyond embarrassing. Caught on film for people like you to see. Okay? Lot is in one of those things because he's about to get drunk because he is neglectful. He is not disciplined and he is about to show... And he, here's the scripture... Snapshot, everyone knows what he did or what happened to him. That his daughters would get the grieving lot drunk and sleep with him so that they could bear children. Reverse incest. That's how messed up this is. That is their solution (laughs) to their problem. It is far worse than the solution that he had for his problem. So you see how it's snowballing, it's escalating, it's getting worse. He neglected grace, but what we see is his daughters are actually aggressively rejecting grace. It's sort of up the ante. And that's what happened. This is a, there's a warning here for, for us dads. If we neglect grace, chances are our children will reject grace. Because they will see 
how ineffective grace is in our lives because of our neglect, not because of God's neglect, but our neglect. And they will think that the gospel has no power because of our lousy example. Let us not be passive men. Let us not be wimpy men. Let us be disciplined, godly men that our children might see and might say, I may not like the grace of God at this moment, but I see it works. And that someday they'll go, yes, I want the grace of God at work in my life. His daughters reject this grace. They actually have more in common with Sodom and Gomorrah than they do their uncle Abraham. And, and they have this, what they think is a reasonable solution to their problem. And now if I can just sort of do, an, I guess, an aside... One of the things that I appreciate more and more the older I get and hopefully the more godly I get uh, for, for Scripture is Scripture is incredibly honest about our sin but does not dwell on the details of our sin. It's more like an old black and white movie than it is today's movies. Okay? You know, back then you, you kind of knew what happened. The door closed. Or, you know, you saw the guy, the, the, the gun goes off, guy goes, ooh, and he falls over and he dies. Okay, now it's, you know, Sam Peckinpah and Walter Hill. The, the blood's flying everywhere and limbs are being hacked off or, you know, you, the, the door doesn't close. Or the door might close, but the camera goes in the door with you. God in his mercy does not dwell on the details of the sin. He's honest about the reality of the sin. He does not hide that from us, but he does not try to suck us in with the details of sin and, prov- and provide greater temptation for us. Okay, That's my nice little aside. Part of why I love Scripture. Okay, um, So they have this reasonable thing. And what we see is that usually what happens is I kind of look around and I see that the rejection of grace often leads to worse sin than ignorance of grace. I thought of one of the worst cities in the world, at least in, as far as I, I've never been there, Amsterdam. Think about Amsterdam for a minute. What did Amsterdam used to be? For us re- reformed people and for my wife's family, that was, that's the, that's the hub, baby. You know, Herman Bavink, Abraham Kuyper, the, 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 the you know, the, the cannon's a dort. <laughs> Good stuff. A hub of reformed theology. This is sort of, you know, one step removed from Gene- Calvin's Geneva. This is it, man. And what is it now? Legalized prostitution and heroin use and all of these things. It is just a bastion of sin. It is people gone wild is what it is. Because a generation neglected grace... And now, sorry, yeah, neglected grace. Then the next generation rejected grace and went to the other extreme. And that's what we see happening in this text. Lot neglects it, they reject it, and great sin, horrible, ugly sin is the result of this. And so the neglect of Christ brings sin, but the rejection of Christ brings even greater sins. Which brings us to the third part that unrepentant sin introduces unavoidable consequences. They achieve their goal. 
they had kids. They, they perpetuated the family line. And yet we see the names of these two children point to their tainted conception. It was sort of, it almost was like the inside joke. People outside might hear and go, that's an odd name. But the, the two mothers knew exactly what was happening. And as, and as Moses does, he doesn't just stop with, okay, here you have these children of suspect birth, but he says that they produced the nations of Moab and Ammon, two nations which Israel was about to meet because Genesis was given to them either in Egypt or during the Exodus in the wilderness. And so they're about to meet their cousins. And Moses wants them to know who their cousins are precisely so they don't get too close to their cousins. Okay? We know that these cousins exist not just on the testimony of Scripture, but we have the Moabite stone, which some archaeologists dug up and references some of the Moabite kings and some of the Israelite kings. We also have some of them uh, of the Ammonite kings appearing in the records that we've discovered from the Assyrians. Okay? So, hey, the archaeology supports what we believe. We're excited. Moses is revealing their character, not just their origin. And it would be the character of these nations because they are not repenting of the sins that got them there in the first place. And so these two nations are characterized by fear, aggression, and sensuality. We see that throughout the rest of the Old Testament. These are the things that mark them profoundly. They're fearful. Okay, During the Exodus... We see a couple things taking place, and, and one of the things that we find in Deuteronomy is that it, it, Moses mentions Moab and Ammon. I think it's, I can't remember if it's 2 9 or 9 2. It's one of those two. And it says, Do not take their land. I am not giving it to you. So remember, they're going to enter the promised land and they're going to dispossess all of the people in the land, but they're not to dispossess Ammon and Moab because they are related. Okay. Nevertheless, Moab is fearful, and we see in Numbers that what they do is they hire Balaam, who was a prophet of the day, uh, an unbelieving prophet, to come and curse them. And it's almost a comical story, because every time Balaam opens his mouth to curse them, God makes him bless them, and the king of Moab is going insane. You know, I paid you money, dude, and uh, it's just not happening. Okay? God was bigger than money. Okay? And so they lived in this fear of the Israelites. So the, both these nations were very fearful, but they were also, more importantly, very aggressive. Okay? During the time of the judges, both Ammon and Moab oppressed the peop- different parts of, the, of Israel. And so we, you, you have uh, a couple judges rising up to cast off the yoke of the Moabites and the Ammonites at times. We see that the, the Israel and Ammon are always sort of struggling for who controls Gilead. There's this constant battle that's going on. And uh, eventually at some point, you know, because David rises to such great prominence that they end up being his vassals and they give him tribute and all of this kind of stuff. But there's sort of this perpetual battle and fight that goes on between Israel and their cousins. It doesn't end. 
until right after the exile, because both of them in Zephaniah 2 were taunting Israel before the exile. And then they also threatened to take their land. Zephaniah 2, I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites, who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah. They were going to cease to exist because they continually cursed God's people in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. But remember, he points them back to the place where they really sort of came from, Sodom and Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. And so God removes, will remove that prohibition. Well, he removes it right there. That Israel would inherit their land, even though before they were prohibited from doing that. So... Um, it would come to an end, but they were aggressively against God's people, Israel. Third part that I mentioned was that they were sold out to sensuality. Okay, it, it didn't stop, you know, with these two girls doing this weird thing with their dad. Okay, but we see that after everything failed with Balaam, what happened is the Moabite women moved in, and they began to tempt the Israelite men. We see this in uh, Numbers. Okay, uh, Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal or Lord of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. Here are people who had just seen God deliver them from Egypt. They had just, not too long ago, seen God open up the Red Sea so that they can pass through and then close it again on top of the Egyptians. They had seen a real God at work, and here comes the Moabite hussy saying, Oh, why don't you join in our worship? You'll find it to be fun. Because the, Mo- the worship of the, the Moabites was very sexual in nature. It was sensual. It's sort of like that Bud Light commercial that's on right now where the women from the other planet come and offer the guys a chance to, I don't know, have experiments performed on them and hold up the Bud Light and all the guys go, yeah, man! That's essentially what we, we see. Check out our worship. Yeah! And so all these, all these Israelite men rush to worship the God, the evil, vile, disgusting God of the Moabites. It resulted in a great plague that would break out and destroy much of Israel for their sin. And that wasn't the only time that happened. Okay? We see, as we read from First Kings this morning, Solomon hoping to have political alliances with Moab and Ammon, took Moabite and Ammonite women, loyal women, into his home to be his wives. And what did they bring with them? Their gods. And what did Solomon, the wisest man in all the earth, do? The dumbest thing in the world to do. He built idol uh, temples for their worship and began to worship their gods. 
Now, I already talked about the god of the, the Moabites. The god of the Ammonites uh, was Shemosh, and what he demanded was child sacrifice, human sacrifice. Gets back to the aggressiveness. See how messed up these people are? And yet here is Solomon brings them into the family and begins to worship. And as we saw from that text, that is the reason why God splits Israel into two. So you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It was because Solomon had begun to lust after the gods of the nations around him. Okay. And so all of those show how the, this relationship with the, this, these cousins of theirs was an ugly, sordid sort of relationship. And it, it went on for centuries. It's one of the themes that kind of works throughout the Old Testament. Okay? Our sin is no different. Like the two unnamed daughters, we actually invite tornadoes into our lives, into our churches, into our communities. We think our sin is isolated to ourselves, but we don't see that it spreads and it affects other people. And we, we don't really reckon with all the consequences that will come from our what we think is isolated decision. And instead it produces this incredible harvest of bitter weeds, thorns, thistles, and poisonous flowers that threaten to undo communities and families. Okay, it's not just them. It's also us. It's not like our sin is okay, but theirs is really bad. All of our sin is just as bad as theirs. It is only Christ Himself who can remove our guilt and our condemnation through His work for us. In fact, it is only Jesus that can work in us so that we can flee from our patterns of sin and put them to death. As Paul Tripp uh, tweeted this week, I don't usually do the gospel tweet thing, okay? But someone put it on their Facebook, so I saw it. Um, it is a work of grace that we even recognize how much we need grace. And that's similar here. It, we can't even see the patterns in our lives that need to be undone by grace, except God, by grace, opens our eyes to see them. That we can then go, oh my, oh, what am I doing? What am I bringing into the lives of my, of my friends and family? What am I doing? What must be deconstructed? Grace shows us that, but also grace empowers us to be able to put that to death in the power of the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans. Okay? This is not you just making some easy decision, but this is spiritual warfare that is only done in the power of the Spirit according to the Word of God put to death our own sinful patterns because they exist. No matter how good you are, no matter how godly you are, they still exist. They're just a little farther down. And God in His grace will show us when it's time. He might show us through another person. He might show us through reading about someone else's similar problem. The light bulb goes on. But He will show us. Okay? 
God and God alone can break the patterns of sin. Evidence of that? Ruth, the Moabitess. She came out of that nation and the worship of of that God and became, I can't remember now, great-grandmother of David in the genealogy of Jesus by God's grace. Only by that grace. So God can break the patterns. He does break the patterns. But unlike Lot and his daughters, we must return to the one who is greater than Abraham to receive that grace. It only happens in connection with Jesus. That's the only way it happens. You cannot do it by sucking it up and trying harder. You cannot do it by making a few changes. You might need to make a few changes, but ultimately it is a heart issue and the only one who can overcome your sinful heart is Jesus. Who knew temptation, but did not sin. Who sits as our great high priest, able and willing to give us grace and mercy in our time of need. He's the only one who can help you straighten that which you have bent. And so this Bible story is one without hope. It is one apparently without grace. It is about the neglect of God and the rejection of God, which inevitably lead to greater sin in people's lives. It is about human solutions that ultimately cause a bigger mess than what they try to fix. But this passage implicitly reminds us of our need for Christ as we experience fear and loss. It points us to our need for grace to interrupt the cycles of fear, sin, and despair that exist in all of us. That we might cling to Him. And that He might change us. Let us pray. Father, none of us is exempt from fear. All of us have experienced loss. Even without fear and loss, we are prone to neglect the means of grace. And so may your Spirit work in us that when we experience loss and fear, that we're moved toward you instead of away from you. That we don't try to solve it on our own but we we look to you to bring about your solution. That seeing our own weakness, we'd use the means of grace that we might walk in a way that honors you, in a way that pleases you, that glorifies you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus who saves sinners and also sanctifies saints. Amen.